suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there. Welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through the high seas of life. Today we introduce I Fought the Law, Part 2 of 4, the story of Bobby Fuller's release of I Fought the Law, and the fact that Bobby was found dead at the age of 23 in his mom's blue Oldsmobile in front of his own apartment, and the police failed to do any investigation whatsoever. If you'll recall in our last episode, we mentioned there was a, at first a finding of suicide, a strange circumstance. Number two, they then had the L.A. Medical examiner's office changed the finding to accidental asphyxiation. And this all, this all seems quite odd. And it, it, it definitely, their finding, seems a very strange way, at best, to interpret the crime scene, a potential crime scene whereby the deceased, an otherwise healthy 20 three-year-old famous musician with a big hit on his hands has had his body doused in gasoline. Remember, he's been found dead in the parking lot. Doused in gasoline, his arms and shoulders covered in bruises. He has suffered a broken finger. All the above while seated in a family automobile parked just outside his own apartment with its windows closed tightly and with a hose in his hand, in the hand of of the deceased that leads to an open gas can, which is situated on the passenger seat of his own, his mother's vehicle. The police do not take any fingerprints from the scene. They don't brush for fingerprints whatsoever. They don't identify a single person of interest. They identify no witness, and they interview not a single person involved in the case. And, and, and these are the L.A. criminal investigators? I mean, further details and, and, and what I would call evidence suggests one at least might ought to have considered an alternative explanation beyond this was an accidental asphyxiation having taken place and conclude that something far more nefarious that an accidental asphyxiation has occurred and that explains the cause of death and the circumstances of a 23-year-old rock star especially when there there exist two other details that I know I find interesting and I'm sure that you'll find interesting that that must be taken into account, cannot be ignored, and it's just hard. 
almost impossible to rationalize. It's hard to square with an official ruling of accidental asphyxiation as the cause of death in this case when you get these two, two new facts, and they are. And try to explain this. The Oldsmobile in which Bobby Fuller's body was found had not, repeat, not been present in the parking lot in front of his apartment building only 30 minutes prior to Fuller's mother finding her son in the vehicle, the corpse of her dead son, and reporting it to police. And number two, Fuller's body was already in an advanced state of rigor mortis at the time that his body was discovered. Um, the meaning of which, it's an indicator at minimum that he had almost assuredly died somewhere else. Given the car was not found in the parking lot, was not seen in the parking lot 30 minutes prior to Fuller's body being discovered and that he was in the advanced state of rigor mortis, who drove the car into the parking lot? Isn't that alone worthy of an investigation? I mean, that is what investigations are for, are they not? To solve mysteries. But one thing we know for is certain. Bobby Fuller wasn't the one that drove the car there. And with these facts in hand, and only these facts in hand, if you were a professional, a professional criminal crime scene investigator, wouldn't you think the known facts would be sufficient to warrant that at least one person ought to be found to be questioned as part of the investigation before the case is closed? I mean, while CSI was not then, the, you know, the hit criminal series, you know, it would become and, and still is today. Would it be asking too much of crime scene investigators to consider dusting the car for fingerprints? Yes or no? I mean, it's a binary answer. And let me let me hypothesize for a moment. Let us presume that Bobby Fuller was a huffer. He got high sniffing gasoline. Now, there's no evidence that he was, but again, that would be part of the investigation. The, pol the LA police wouldn't know this one way or the other until and unless they did you know, question a single person who knew Bobby Fuller about Bobby Fuller and his potential for drug usage. Did he have a drug addiction? Was he a huffer? The L.A. police didn't question a single person who knew him during the course of the investigation. Why would this be? How is this even possible? What is going on here? Bobby Fuller was a huffer and he died from an accidental asphyxiation, sniffing gasoline out of a gas can by a hose while sitting in the front seat of his mother's car in front of his own apartment and he did this through a plastic hose after first pouring gasoline all over his body 
and then beating the shit out of himself. Does this make any sense whatsoever? And and we can skip over the broken finger, the fact that he'd been beaten on his arms and shoulders, and the fact that his car hadn't been parked in front of his apartment even 30 minutes previous to his death, and we shall ignore the advanced stage of rigor mortis that he was found in, obviously a factor that cannot be ignored, but we will ignore it for now. How about that? We'll ignore it for now. Is it statistically likely that Bobby Fuller was a huffer? Let's start there. That he got high by sniffing gasoline. (laughs) Well, no. Police statistics, their own statistics indicate that Bobby Fuller didn't even fit the profile of a huffer. He didn't even fit the profile. The typical huffer is a kid. It's a young teen, male, of course. And the mean age of a huffer is 14, 14. Bobby was 23. Usage declines with age, I would think, and some sense. And it's rarely a problem. You don't find huffers past the age of 18 unless they are anomalies. And Bobby Fuller was 23, rich, famous. It's just hard to believe. These stats, of course, they don't mean that Fuller was not a huffer, but it definitely means he would have been an outlier if he were. And by definition, he would be a very, very unusual drug abuser. And the typical means by, and think of the science of this, the typical means by which huffers actually do get high from sniffing gasoline is to breathe deeply, deep breaths through the mouth from a container of gasoline directly or from a rag that has been thoroughly soaked in gasoline. It would have been highly unlikely as a strategy for any huffer they would ever seek to get high by sniffing gasoline vapors via his nostrils through a long hose that had been inserted into a gas can. That's just not how it's done. I mean, it makes no sense scientifically, medically, and it's not how you get high. Then there is, then there is no, no, there's no known rational reason a huffer, let's say a real huffer, would douse and soak his own body thoroughly in gasoline and then sniff via his nostril gas vapors through a long hose from what gas remains in the can after he's doused himself in gasoline. None of this makes any logical sense. In fact, it simply defies all logic. And speculation has run rampant since Bobby's Fuller's death. Number one, Fuller was the target of a hit ordered carried out for having had an affair with a mafioso's girlfriend. Hmm, maybe. Doubt it. And then there's this one. There is there is even a less likely, more nebulous allegation that Bobby Fuller's untimely death was somehow, that some way might be connected to LSD and then involved 
Charlie Manson and his weird family of lunatics. Manson delusionally believing he had musical talent and, and whom it was true peripherally was tied into the music scene in L.A. and Laurel Canyon, you know, only as a hanger-on. He had no talent. And he was on the periphery, and he was tied in most closely through the Wilson brothers of the Beach Boys. So the, fa- the fact is, it's quite unlikely that Bobby Fuller's death was caused by Charlie Manson giving him LSD. More likely, the demise of Bobby Fuller was related to the entry into his life of a very bad man. A a very bad man. A man whom from day one would have meant bad juju was definitely on the way. Because he was. He was an evil omen, a bad moon on the rise. Gangster, a known diabolical presence by the name of Maurice, Morris, Mo Levy. Mo Levy was a bad guy. He was the owner of Roulette Records. And Levy was an unscrupulous, notorious, and very, very highly dangerous figure, described as the godfather of the American music business back in the 1960s. Levy's business partners and associates read like a Rolodex of East Coast Mafia families. Gambino, Genovese, De Cavalcante, and other families all heavily involved in all aspects of organized crime. These were Levy's buddies. Whoa. You don't want to run afoul of these guys. And all of them had Decades of experience in the very nasty, wet work that is associated with the frightening intimidation of everyday people and the harsh, painful, and often often lethal enforcement activities a judge an essential aspect required uh, in the uh, management and administration of the very, very ugly and ferocious criminal netherworld businesses in which Mo Levy and the rest of the mobsters were involved. And to run afoul of these mobsters, these monsters, was always most unfortunate. Books and newspaper articles, magazine articles, have been written cataloging Um, the grim, gruesome history of beatings administered and threats made and untimely deaths suffered by those unfortunates whom had in some way managed to piss off the highly toxic, the homicidal, psychopathic Morris Moe Levy. Convicted. He was convicted of extortion after a three and a half year FBI investigation. And with five, you know, with five ex-wives, one of whom that he had badly beaten inside the confines of a phone booth. And this is the kind of guy we're talking about. He terrorized dozens of people, many musicians, including even Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shandells, whom Levy had screwed out of 30 to 40 million dollars, but James 
Tommy James was so afraid of Mo Levy, he avoided the East Coast in entirety and wouldn't speak about his problems with Levy until he was 100% absolutely certain that Mo Levy and every one of his unsavory organized criminal you know, syndicate associates was long dead and buried. And only then would he come out of the closet. That's the degree of fear that Mo Levy induced in normal human beings. And, and, I, and as an aside, I point out, John Lennon either had the guts or was nuts enough, and perhaps even both, to have sued Mo Levy, who in turn sued John Lennon. And as it turned out, you know, legal bills and emotional costs aside, Lennon actually won the legal battles with Levy by a net ratio of awards of 20 to 1. And, and, and then somehow fortunately avoided a worse fate than simply fighting a proxy war through lawyers against one Mo Levy. You know, an expensive altercation in a courtroom, uh, it, it would be preferable to Levy's meeting out, you know, unbridled street justice outside the friendly confines of those halls of justice of which he was fully capable and upon which he offered delivered outside the courtroom walls. I sincerely trust that John Lennon was not playing those mind games, if you will, for which he was so famous with the likes of one Mo Levy. (laughs) One time, caught on a secret FBI wiretap was one musical artist. I mean, and this guy, he persisted in his efforts to collect the royalties owed to him by, by Levy and who was very, very reluctant to pay. And it was obviously very irritating to Levy, who lost his patience. And, and then, again, this is on tape. He warned and simultaneously threatened the musician. And this is what Levy said. If you keep asking me for your money, I will have to kill you or hurt you. Hmm. As respects Bobby Fuller, shortly before his death, he'd most unfortunately, most unfortunately, he'd signed an exclusive record distribution deal with Levy's Roulette Records. It was more like Russian Roulette. Talk about doing, you know, a deal with the devil. And for reasons that are easily imagined, Bobby Fuller soon found himself dealing with the unsavory, outright crook, Mo Levy, and he found dealing with him impossible. And that signing the deal had been a terrible mistake. It, and it might well have been worse, a fatal mistake. Basically, signing the contract was probably a death sentence. And Fuller then demonstrated interest in backing out of the deal, and his backing out of the deal became well known. And he was seen arguing with a man in a parking lot that was later identified by a third party who didn't even know who Levy was, but he recognized the picture, and that was Levy, Mo Levy. And Levy 
was not a man known for his ability to make accommodations. He wasn't willing to make accommodations, reasonable or otherwise. No, he was not. And shortly thereafter, Bobby, Bobby Fuller was found dead. You know, it's a kind of a Stalin-like, no man, no problem fate. It, it, it all might be just coincidence, but like old spies, code breakers, and experienced criminal investigators, they are, they are convinced nothing in the world happens by coincidence. And it's not that they are not easily convinced at the existence of coincidence. The truth is that most criminal investigators simply they just don't believe in the existence of coincidence at all. Nope, doesn't exist. But as respects the L.A. police and the Bobby Fuller case, who knows what they believed in as it did next to nothing in the case for reasons that were never made clear, never were questioned, and about which have never, ever been explained to this day. You know, the trifecta of ignorance and corruption. Don't look, don't ask, don't tell. You know, sort of a synthesized Clintonian behavior in raw form. And, and you know, Bobby Fuller was at the peak of his career at the time of his death. Why would he commit suicide? And the oddity and inconsistencies of the alleged crime scene, they do not suggest suicide. They do not even suggest as accidental asphyxiation. And no one who knew Fuller at the time of his death indicated that Fuller was even remotely suicidal. No one reported he was a huffer. And the cause of his death, even 57 years later now, remains officially accidental asphyxiation. And in Fuller's case, it might well have proven true. Not only had Fuller fought the law and the law won, it might be equally well established that Bobby Fuller had fought the outlaw and the outlaw had won. Quite a clash. Well, speaking of clash, well, first... First, we must enter the variable of General Noriega, Manuel Noriega, into the equation, into the calculus. Panama's General Noriega? Are you kidding me? What is this? How is he possibly related to the story of I fought the law? I mean, how is he involved? Well, you, you might ask a question, but there is a weird, weird connection, and it is a weird connection, I admit. But of course, that is what interests me. And I, I enjoy the incongruity and the unexpected nature of the synchronicity of events and people. And that's what we shall discuss at some point in length in part three of I Fought the Law. Let's depart... Let's, let's close this, this episodic adventure today um, on a note from the famous Swiss analytical psychologist C.G. Jung. Synchronicity. A meaningful coincidence of two or more events where something other than the probability of chance is involved. I have to tell you, 
I am not even sure. I'm not exactly sure. I understand what Jung's meaning is. For I, I don't believe in in the paranormal, you know, claims of alien anal probes and all that. But strange events, I must admit, do take place and take place with some regularity. Do they not? So, hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And we will return with the rest of the story when we return to I Fought the Law Part 3 coming up next. Hope you'll tune in. Bye-bye. Stand adrift on the high seas of life.